you've been around for the past couple of years, you probably have heard the phrase neurodivergence. It's becoming sort of a buzzword on the internet, on social media. It's everywhere. Folks are starting to become more familiar with the term. So maybe you already have some embodied sense of what it means, or maybe you don't. Maybe that term is new to you. You've heard it and you're just not really sure what it is. This episode is going to help demystify that in a very raw and real and relatable sense. Um, So the episode is, as always, by way of a story. And our guest today is a parent of a neurodivergent or what she and her son prefer to call atypical child. um, Because to them, atypical is better than typical, right? Like who wants to just be typical? That's kind of lame and boring. So um, we will, of course, get there by way of a very beautiful and relatable story. So one thing I've found is that most people who love yoga have some similar threads to their yoga story. So that part's always fun to listen to for me. And so our guest today, Kate Lynch, is the author of an upcoming book called Atypical Kids, Mindful Parents, The Joys and Struggles of Raising Neurodivergent Kids. So in this episode, It's not just for you if you're a parent, it is also for you if you perhaps think you have, you know, maybe an inkling of neurodivergence or you want to learn more about what that is or maybe you just want to hear another good yoga story because that's what we do here on this podcast. So Kate shares her yoga story, her parenting story and how that beautifully led into birthing this book into the world, which is what she's doing now. And so it's a good story. It's a good listen. It's also packed with wisdom and relatability and vulnerability. And it just touched my heart to record the interview. So I really hope you enjoy it. Um, I hope you get something out of it. And I hope if you are a parent or even if you're not, I hope it starts to spark because everybody, even if you don't have children, was parented in their childhood, right? So I hope this starts to spark some curiosity about mindful parenting and what that could mean, what that could look like if you were perhaps parented in that way, if you are a parent in that way now. It's just good things to think about. It's a beautiful story. Welcome to the Science of Light. I'm your host, Rosemary Holbrook, your friendly neighborhood Vedic astrologer and yoga teacher here to share yoga stories, share people who are finding their dharma, their life path, living out their life path. And that's what we do. When we share the stories, we get to hear from people who are birthing something beautiful into the world based on what they've experienced and what the world needs. And that's exactly what Kate is doing. And you'll get to hear towards the end her definition of atypical, her definition of neurodivergence, what that means. So buckle up, enjoy the story. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Science of Light. I'm your host, Rosemary, and today I am joined by Kate Lynch. Hi, Kate. Hi, Rosemary. So welcome. I'm glad you're here. So I'm super stoked to learn about what you do and how you got into that. So can you just start off by telling us who were you before you found yoga? Okay, this is going to be hard to believe um, for those who know me at all. (laughs) I was a stress out fashion designer in Manhattan. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. So I, I grew up an artist, but I also grew up, um, with a lot of like housing and food insecurity. Mm -hmm. So I wanted, um, 
I'm going to start crying like first minute. <laughs> you said you want a vulnerable interview. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted financial independence. So I went for fashion design mm. and I did that for 10 years and it basically crushed my soul. I was very stressed out. I'd had a couple of car accidents and um, some like neck issues. And I got into yoga basically to deal with the stress. Okay. Yeah. So was it like a, somebody was like, you should try yoga situation. Yeah. My best friend from high school, actually, she moved to California and I went and visited her and she took me to her uh, like regular neighborhood yoga class. Nice. So was it like a, I don't know. I feel like when I hear of California and yoga, I'm like Baron Baptiste, like power yoga, something like that. It was a Kundalini yoga class. Nice. And that was my practice and my main teaching style for the first at least decade, if not more. Yeah. Okay. So what made you decide to start teaching? Like, how did you go from that first class to becoming a yoga teacher? So I got, I got more into it. I was trying to get out of uh, the fashion industry and I ended up moving years later to California um, and started taking more yoga classes. And then I had always wanted to backpack around Southeast Asia or just to travel. Like I was very into travel. So I decided that by my 30th birthday, I was going to be traveling in Southeast Asia. So on, I was on a plane on my 30th birthday for a six month trip. I basically had saved up for years for this trip and um, ended up meeting an Australian, had a great time kind of discovered a lot about my own spirituality and um, did a lot of these kind of more spiritual things in Southeast Asia, for sure. Um, But then I met a surfer, an Australian surfer, and moved to Sydney, Australia. Wow. Trying to keep the story short. Um, No, it's fine. (laughs) So in Australia, there was no one, in Sydney, there was no one teaching Kundalini yoga. So I started doing Ashtanga at the local like surf club with a like a surfer who was just sharing her practice. And it was really fun. But I was like, you know, I want to I want to practice Kundalini. Nobody was doing it. And before I left California, my teacher had said, oh, well, you should just start teaching. And I was like, what? No, I'm not a teacher. I'm an artist. And then um, 9-11 happened and I was in Sydney and my family was in New York and I, it it impacted me very, very deeply. I didn't know where my dad was for quite a while. Mm -hmm. He was fine, but yeah, that's hard. It was a lot. And that was the final kind of fire to start my training as a yoga teacher. So did you do that training in Australia or did you go back to California? How did that? So I began with a, they have colleges that do certifications there in yoga. So I started with a couple of um, foundational modules in 
anatomy and physiology and um, counseling. And then one thing led to another and I had an opportunity to go and study in New Mexico, do a intensive with the Kundalini guy whose name I won't mention. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and I, I came back and basically was like, okay, this is my, I'm doing this now after like 30 days of training. Wow. Very so intensive what was that training, like? but still, yeah. um, you know, you know how teenagers kind of think they know everything and toddlers think they know everything once they learn a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever you learn something and you're like, oh, now I've got all the knowledge, (laughs) but I was, I was so earnest. I was getting up at five o'clock every morning, doing my practice, extremely earnest and, you know, doing everything the way that I had been taught exactly. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting um, who ended up, I just opened up my living room and put a bowl out. You know, and I just said, put flyers up. This is how long ago it was. You know, I put flyers up and put my phone number and like invited people. So the very first person who came to my living room was pregnant with her third child. First of all, I hadn't, I had no training in prenatal beyond what they mm-hmm. kind of, the, the do's and don'ts that they give us in regular teacher training, right? Um So she was pregnant with her third child and she was aware that her child was going to have Down syndrome. So this was my really initiation into teaching yoga. Wow. And I was just super curious and wanted to support her and probably asked too many questions. (laughs) And, um, And since I didn't really have any advice for her, I just let the yoga do the work. Right. And that turns out that was the right thing to do. As it usually is, I think. So was this in California or still Australia? I was still in Australia. Okay. And then also second question, I know you have a child now. This was pre you having a child, right? Yeah. So this is like, I fell in love with this Australian. um, That was in the late, in 1999. And um, now it's, it's a lot later than that. So um that was in 1999, and my I, I started my training in 2000 and, well, yeah, 2002, right? Right. Um, and so I was teaching in 2002. So it sounds like, you know, this is the the common thread that I hear most times. I that's why I love hearing people's like yoga story, how people become yoga teachers. Right? Is the common thread is like you live your life and then you find yoga somehow usually to, you know, deal with stress or an injury or whatever it is. And then you want to put good into the world. So then that's how you start teaching, you know, is that you've experienced the, the positive impacts it had on you. Does that sound like, you know, sound like the common thread? I've got chills well? listening to you say that. Cause that's exactly what it was for me. It's like, I started to become more and more aware and awake. And I always, I had known for a long time that I didn't want to be part of the problem. And the more I learned about the fashion industry, at least where I was in it, I felt like I was part of the problem, contributing Mm. to harm. Right. So I wanted to get away from that. And yoga gave me the courage to do that. Mm -hmm. And then when 9-11 happened, my level of suffering went way up. 
And I saw the suffering in the world and my level of like compassion went way up. And I knew I needed to do something to, to alleviate not just my own suffering, but the suffering that I saw in the world. And because it had helped me on a personal level, yeah. I mean, this is, this is the story, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's amazing. And that's what I hear from a lot of folks and the, right. the particulars are always different, but it's just beautiful to see all the different ways it sort of plays out. And so then everybody has their little like specialties or whatever that you get into, which I usually find for most folks, it comes from like things, their life experience. Right. So when you, this first person that showed up, did, did that make you take a great interest in like prenatal yoga or yes. kind of what happened from there? So I had always wanted to be a parent. And the reason I moved to Australia is the guy, right? Yeah. He said, he asked me to marry him. He said he wanted to be, uh, he he also wanted to be a parent. So I married him, moved to Australia. Six years later, it still hadn't happened. He kind of backed out of that. And we ended up ending that, that relationship. And I moved back to Brooklyn. Okay. So just to kind of put that in context. So those first couple of years teaching, I was in Australia. Right. And then I I moved back to New York. And I still wasn't a parent, but I had always wanted to be one. So I very soon after the divorce, I did meet my current and hopefully final husband, <laughs> um, my beloved, the father of my child. Nice. That's beautiful. And, and I got into... Um, pretty soon I got into teaching in New York, um, reconnected with my teacher trainer and she had helped start like open a, a new studio and it took a little while, but not that long for me to be teaching like 20 classes a week in New York all over. Right. Were these all Kundalini classes? No, I had done a um vinyasa training this that summer when i moved back i I moved to the omega institute in in rhinebeck Mm -hmm. new york and i lived there for a season and worked there and lived in a tent it was amazing and i connected with sean corn and i hadn't heard about her do you know her know the name yep so then i did a vinyasa teacher training with her so that kind of the idea was I'm going to be able to be more marketable as a yoga teacher. Right. But I really yeah. loved it. You know, the way she taught it was very soulful and I connected with it. Yeah. So it was easy to offer myself as a vinyasa and kundalini teacher at that point. That's and then cool. I, um, I had already done several prenatal trainings by then and um, parent child trainings or parent child and also kids yoga trainings like I just kept adding on those trainings because my mission at that point was really about contributing to the future of our planet Mm. through through working with families so even before I was a parent you know I felt connected to that and I became known as a of a, a trusted educator in Brooklyn for for families, a prenatal wow. teacher, postpartum teacher. 
That's awesome. So side note question I want to yeah. ask. This is like backtracking in your story, but when you talk you were talking about the fashion industry, where my mind went when you were talking about the harm done of the fashion industry, and I just love to hear your perspective. Maybe I should ask your perspective before I give like what no, I thought of what I was thinking was like my first thought was fast fashion. And when you said the future of the planet, I was like, yeah, fast fashion, right? Like we see all this stuff that's crowding thrift stores with the fast fashion. And then, but then also like, what is the role of that with like, is there like a body body positivity piece and like body image with the fashion? Was it one of those things or both? I think the first thing was traveling to um, factories Mm. and seeing the conditions. And we were using some of the better conditions, you know, factories with the better conditions and learning about ways that indigo is made by basically like digging a pit and pouring all these chemicals in. And um, yeah, so it was harming the planet. It was labor practices. Mm. Those were the things I was most, and waste. Those are the things I was most concerned about then. Okay. That's cool. I was just curious. And that was just like a side note. Yeah. That's important though, because also I've seen this conversation happening now, uh, like in yoga teacher communities where they're like, what yoga clothes do we wear that aren't, you know, harming, like practice ahimsa with our clothing that we wear. Right. So that's just, you know, I think it's an important part of the conversation. So thanks for like, you know, at least doing your part, I guess, to not participate in that so anyway I mean it's still going on I didn't stop it from happening right well (laughs) I just walked away from it (laughs) you know I think about all the time it's like there's these systems that are bigger than us and we can influence them or we can choose not to participate in them and there's no right answer always right you know we have to choose something yeah um so I and I'm my biased opinion is that being a yoga teacher puts a lot of good into the world. So um, anyway, so back to like sort of your <laughs> yoga journey, how, um, how did your career evolve beyond, beyond there? So like, how did you go from like, what happened next? In this what story? happened next? Is what I'm so um, my husband and I started trying to conceive even before we were married. Don't tell our parents. It's okay. Yeah. But that didn't work out so easily as we expected. We were both on the older side and who knows. So I was teaching a lot of prenatal and postpartum. I really wanted to be a parent and it felt hard sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. So we went through a couple of years of fertility um, before conceiving and it was um, 2000 and 10 December when he was born. So, okay. Backtrack. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I found out I was pregnant, I was walking with a good friend under the Manhattan bridge, which is Dumbo is like a place in Brooklyn. That's very um, well known for being very noisy. <laughs> mm. There's a train going over the fertility clinic calls me they say something. I'm like, I can't hear you. They, they scream, you're pregnant. And I just screamed back. I was super excited, but I didn't really think it would take the first time. So anyway, it did. So the pregnancy was really hard. I was older ish. 
And I thought that I was going to be this amazing, you know, pregnant person because I knew so much about prenatal yoga and about pregnancy. And I thought that I would have this amazing ecstatic birth because I knew so much about birth. I had done like doula trainings and right. You know, I had read a lot of books. <laughs> I'd known a lot of other people's babies and other people, pregnant people and people um, having kids. And we had our own experience. Mm. So Ocean is my son and he was born at home, but it was nice. not blissful. It was super hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> Neither were either of my births. So I just yeah. thank you for pointing that out because <laughs> there's a lot more to pregnancy than the glow. Yeah. And you can't just um, gratitude yourself into being a, I don't know. I couldn't just gratitude myself into being this like perfect earth mother. You know, I have, mm. you know, I have a lot of baggage and, well, that's and I have the body that I have. Yes. That's an important sentiment because I think, you know, there is a lot of ecstasy around having a child. Like it's a beautiful experience, but I think that's like, that seems like a good metaphor for like something larger going on in our culture that you can't just gratitude yourself. You can't toxic positivity your way through hard things and having a child is hard. Like yeah. Well, giving birth is hard, you know, mm-hmm. so just wanted to point that out that exactly. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, I really tried to toxic positivity my way through until my son was um, a toddler. And then I just couldn't anymore. It was like mm. I hit um, a breaking point. So he was, he, he was colicky as a baby. We didn't mm. know it. He needed a lot of support we had a lot to give. So our level of support matched his needs. And so it took a while to figure out. It was really once we started interacting with other babies the same age, even though I knew lots of babies, this was my first. Mm -hmm. It took a while to figure out that he was struggling with his development. And to then get over the denial that came up around that for both of us. Right. And then to figure out what to do. So he was about a year old when I self-referred him to early intervention, which is the kind of the, the pathway towards special education, basically. Okay. Where they start evaluating your child for whatever needs they might have. So what were some of the signs that made you make that self-referral? The ultimate one was that he, he, his gross motor skills were developing slower, which I wasn't initially worried about, but it became like, oh, he's stuck here. Right. I can see that he's stuck. I had seen lots of kids with their own timeline, but he was like, not even on the timeline. Like he wasn't doing certain things developmentally. He couldn't really get off his belly. So he eventually did manage to crawl on his belly, but he couldn't really get off his belly. So that was where we were at 12 months. Yeah. So were you still like working? I mean, and you know, and work for you is like teaching a lot of yoga. How did that? Yeah. I went down um, when I was pregnant, I went down to like a dozen and then half a dozen classes. And when I started back up, 
he was five months. And then at six months, I was back up to, I don't know, maybe half a dozen classes and sort of slowly ratcheted it back up. Yeah. But because I worked in gyms, I could drop him off for the hour at right. the at the uh, childcare and then pick him up, which was so mm-hmm. ideal. That's why I teach at gyms now. Yeah. I have a <laughs> nine month old and a three year old. So. Yeah. And that was his first social, real social interaction, you know, and first drop off. And it was wonderful. It really worked for the time in my life mm-hmm. you know, that I was at, like you're saying, as a yoga teacher, because generally my income would cancel out any childcare. Right. So then I, you know, I really hit when he was a toddler. Um, we eventually he was diagnosed with autism and I, I felt extremely lost. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really feel like I had time to like, I couldn't go lock myself in a room and practice yoga for an hour. I felt isolated, um, very stressed. There was a yeah. lot to learn and a lot to advocate for, for him. And my practice wasn't helping me or I wasn't leaning into my practice. One or the other, probably mm. a combination. Yeah. So I really had to remind myself and relearn. And it was something as simple as somebody reminding me, another yoga teacher who was a parent, reminding me, feel your feet on the ground. Mm. You know, something as simple as that, just like spread your toes and feel the soles of your feet connecting with the earth. That was the level I could handle at that point. I was still teaching, but that was like in a box, you know, in a box for other people. It is different. Yeah, it is different. It's just like mindfulness is different from meditation. I was meditating with my husband every night before bed, but I would kind Mm. of close my eyes and drop into that meditative space. It would help me get to sleep, Mm. wake up and be, you know, with my son all day, stressed and running around and not taking care of myself. For sure. Yeah. When I imagine at that time, you know, social media wasn't as robust as it is now, like the resources out there for parents probably weren't as robust as they are now. Right. Well, I tapped into a email, um, like an online, like email group that was very helpful, Brooklyn special kids. And that was great for resources. Yeah. But there was nothing like supporting people on that, like emotional, spiritual, Mm. mental health level. So I did eventually get back to therapy. Thank God. Nice. Yeah. And um, so there was therapy. I started getting more into mindfulness as a meditation practice, but also as a way to integrate that into my daily life. So it wasn't it wasn't like this separate thing that I needed a certain amount of time for because I Mm. didn't have that. So it was something I could integrate into what I was already doing as a caregiver. Yeah. That would help me to stay self-regulated. Nice. And then when I was able to be self-regulated, I was more helpful to my son because I could co-regulate with him. 
co-regulate. I love that. Could you say more about what that is? So when babies are born, they can't self-regulate. Their nervous systems are just not operable in that way. That's why mm-hmm. they need us right, to, to hold them and care for them and cuddle them and all of that. It helps them to regulate. So the more self-regulated we are, like I'm sure you've noticed with your kids, if you're stressed, they pick up on it right? Mm-hmm. Well, he was like hypersensitive to that. And I was hyper anxious because it was a stressful experience. Yeah. It wasn't exactly what I ex- had expected as a parent. And I was navigating a lot of systems and um, obstacles that I wasn't, that I wasn't prepared for. For sure. So the so as parents, if we, and as anyone, right, if, if someone else is dysregulated, unable to cope. If we are regulated, if we are not just calm, but like aware of ourselves, aware of what our emotions are, aware of our bodies, aware of our breath, self-aware, mindful, however you want to say it, just by being in proximity with us, those people near us benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's this great author, um, Larry Cohen, who wrote about the second chicken. And I think this really applies to yoga, right? Okay. So the second, the second chicken is like a chicken is kind of just pecking away and it hears a sound and it looks up and it looks around. And if the other chicken is running around in circles, it starts freaking out and running around in circles. But right. if the other chicken is just sitting there like, everything's cool, I'm pecking away, then that chicken will go back to pecking away and be fine. Okay. Yeah. I've heard a quote before to that effect. That was like the strongest nervous system in the room wins. So if you're really strongly calm, you can bring other people to match. You're really strongly calm. Or if you're really strongly stressed out, you're going to bring the calm person a little bit into your stress. Right. So I would say for the first few years, my son's nervous system was definitely the strongest in the room (laughs) and he was winning, like that was winning. And so I really needed to overcome that. That was something I needed to overcome. I feel like even as a yoga teacher with like over 10 years experience teaching by that point, um, I needed new tools. Mm. So I discovered self-compassion and specifically with Tara Brock. So I was like on this mindfulness journey and then found her way of teaching self-compassion through the, the rain technique. Do you know this one? I don't. Uh, recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. I like it. So yeah, there's a lot Yeah, online you can find about it. It's a Buddhist technique, but she was the one who kind of, who I learned it from. Nice. And this was what helped me to get over that toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. And rather than just in therapy, I was just kind of explaining all the triggers. And in meditation, I was just like, oh, calm it down. This was what helped me kind of really heal. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Can you say a little bit more, though, like of how those three things worked together, like the therapy, the meditation and the self-compassion piece? It sounds like mindfulness piece. Yeah. Okay. So the therapy was giving me the awareness, helping me with awareness, which is also mm-hmm. mindfulness also helps with awareness, but awareness of like 
things in my past that would would be triggering as mm-hmm. my son turned three you know maybe something that was happening when I was three was affecting me now who knows um but to kind of unpack and be able be willing to unpack but then I would just kind of label them and look at them with a little distance so then the meditation I was very experienced as dropping into this calm place mm-hmm. so I could do that but then I wasn't integrating it into what was happening in my daily life, the stressful things that were happening in my daily life. So there was a disconnect there. So there's these two disconnects, right? And then what I found, and maybe it's just because I got to that point where I was like desperate and needed to figure something out. But what I found with self-compassion was it gave me an opportunity to really befriend the, rather than just calming things down or looking at them from a distance and being like, yeah, that sucked befriending the the pain and the struggle and seeing listening to that pain and struggle and that part of me that was suffering so it's kind of a reparenting process almost right when you get Mm -hmm. to the nurturing I was gonna say that sounds like inner child work which is like a buzzword nowadays but that's what you're describing I think but that stuff's great (laughs) yeah 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 and so it was, you know, I would recognize, sure, that was what um, what the therapy gave me. I could recognize what was happening. Allow was new, right? That I would actually allow it rather than trying to calm it down or push it away or toxic positivity. It, right. I would allow it to be there. And then I would investigate, like start to ask questions. Where do you feel this in your body? How old are you, you know? whatever questions I was willing to ask Mm -hmm. and, and then ask what that part of me needed. And then I was able to give that part of me what it needed. Which sounds like nurture, right? Right. So that's the nurture step. Exactly. And it's not easy, but it's a, it's a reproducible process Mm -hmm. that I just now use on repeat. Yeah. So then I started teaching it. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So then I started teaching it and then things got a lot easier with my son. And part of that was me. And part of that was him was maturing. Mm -hmm. Right. Getting more support because he was in a good setting, good school that helped him a lot of support with therapists and he was getting what he needed. So I was able to kind of ratchet down my nervous system, co-regulate, and it was kind of that upward spiral rather than downward spiral. Yeah. So we're in a good place. Then guess what happened? What? Oh, what? The pandemic. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. (laughs) So right before the pandemic, I made a commitment to write a book about um, the the tools that I had used Mm. that helped me navigate parenting my son Mm -hmm. so it was really just going to be a set of tools and then somebody suggested maybe put some of your story in there yeah so it took um then the pandemic happened so it was like right next to each other (laughs) um and at the same time actually this 
the scandal about kundalini yoga broke oh so yeah i was pretty i felt pretty alone as many people did and i was very triggered mm -hmm. um and it took a really long time to write the book let's just put it that way <laughs> as it does life yeah so so the book became more way more than just a kind of a list of or a group of tools for parents and is is much more just interwoven with story yeah so that's kind of bringing us up to the present day yeah in a beautiful way so clearly <laughs> i agree with the story component that's like how i built this whole podcast because i think it's important i think it's like we can all see the parallels it's like the little human threads that we all have right um yeah. but so yeah I also just want to savor for a moment you said the the kundalini scandal because that's something I'm noticing is that we have these lineages right and yeah. they're usually a lot of times fathered for lack of a better word by usually a male right and that's right. the guru and the whole lineage comes from that person and so when then the person is a person and does people things and falls from grace, then it feels like the whole lineage is crumbling. And then we've seen some lineages kind of carry on without the person versus some, I don't know. It's just, that's a very real thing happening yeah. in the yoga world. And there are people who are able to compartmentalize. Like I've heard the thing of, oh, you know, don't, focus on the teacher focus on the teachings mm -hmm. yeah but to, but I re I read everything including this report that was very graphic mm. and you know stories and accounts um and I couldn't practice or teach anything that came from him anymore mm. yeah and a lot of the stuff he did make up and a lot of the the way he taught was designed to, and I have to say I did benefit a great deal from it, but I had already, I already had enough of a self-concept that I wasn't, I was very peripheral to the cult. <laughs> Let's just put it that right. way. Um, yeah. I never changed my name. I, you know, I was close, but not, not sucked yeah. in, if that yeah. makes sense. Because, um, like I said, I already had a very strong self-concept by the time I even started practicing Kundalini Yoga. Mm -hmm. I wasn't as vulnerable as some of the people. But right. what what the teachings, many of the teachings were designed to do was to break people down. Yeah. So it's it's cult-inducing behavior. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, and then I give them a whole new identity, like... And then they're they're more attached, more more connected to that, and and isolated from their families and their history. Thank you for pointing that out because that's something that I'm like. The reason I brought that up is because I, as a yoga teacher, am always wanting to examine how my behavior could contribute or not contribute to that kind of dynamic, right? right. So thank you for pointing out some of the specifics of the dynamic. And also I agree with like, I never, Kundalini wasn't really my jam. Like I've taken some Kundalini classes, although I took one recently and I was like, this is pretty much just hyperventilating. And that's why you feel something in your head. Cause you're hyperventilating. <laughs> anyway, when I take a Bikram class, which I haven't in years, 
but I did sometimes here and there for a while. It was triggering to hear the language that was triggering to me even then, even before his scandal broke yeah. out. So that's important. So thanks for kind of pointing that out because I, you know, it's important to point out these dynamics in the yoga world, I think. Right. So, and I had to unpack it in myself and the way I taught. And so I learned from a lot of um, trauma informed women and mm. I really dove into that how to hold space how to hold space online first of all right yeah. once that happened and how to hold space in a much more um trauma-informed way so that's yeah. really important to me yeah so to create more of a circle right more of I the, agree yeah and yeah. you know teachers great teachers who have never um exploited or been you know I mean not all women teachers are without any blame but I can think right. of several Cindy Lee Angela Farmer just off the top of my head yeah no scandals right right <laughs> yeah scandal free those ones um so I guess your teaching style had kind of evolved by the time you wrote the book anyway right you know, what I ended up doing is going back and really researching the mm. heck out of all the practices to make sure that, like, for example, there are mudras that were just called something else in Kundalini Yoga, but they are from a, a more ancient lineage and they have right. a different name, right? Okay. So as long as I could find and understand and not appropriate the practices from you know from various sources i felt comfortable sharing them nice in the book that's awesome so can you tell us the title of your book so right now <laughs> the publisher likes atypical kids mindful parents oh okay so that's why I wanted to ask because I knew Atypical Kids was in there. Um, can you? And tell there's a me... subtitle. Okay, what's the, the subtitle? The joys and struggles of parenting neurodivergent kids. I think I think that's what it is. Yeah. So, well, thanks for sharing that part too because I've had a few authors on here, and I like to also point out, like we were talking about with giving birth to a human, giving birth to a book is this weird, messy process. Oh my also, God, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for sharing that. Um, but so I, I wanted to ask, this was one of the things that I wrote down to ask you was, can you share your definition? Like, I know there's like a definition somewhere, but what is your definition of atypical and neurodivergent? If those are the same thing or there's oh. overlap, can you just define those in your, in your way? So as I unfold my own neurodivergence, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting right? Because language does change all the time. Yeah. And as my son gets older, his willingness to be um, open about his, you know, what's his story too, changes. When I originally was beginning the book, I asked him, I gave him a series of descriptors words and he chose atypical and he thought it just felt like kind of better than typical right like who wants to be typical right i want to be atypical yeah um and 
what it encompasses is pretty much the same as neurodivergent. I think yeah. it's when it's, or it could also be other more invisible differences mm. because I think there is something different that happens when you're parenting a child whose differences are invisible. Yeah. Parents, other people, not parents, but other people observing make instant judgments mm -hmm. about your parenting all the time. Yeah. Where if someone has, if a child has a visible disability, that's less likely. Um, right. So neurodivergence is just like having a brain that is different, right, from the typical. And is there, is there a typical brain? I really don't know. Yeah. But the, the world or our culture was created for a certain neurotype. Right. And the farther we are from that neurotype, the harder it is to navigate this culture. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it hard. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know yeah, if I really gave so. a specific definition. There's probably No, that's fine. What I was hoping for was like an explanation for somebody who may not be familiar with that word, because I know there's a whole, like people that are down that rabbit hole are down that rabbit hole. You know what I mean? And then people that there's tons of people out there who that might be a new concept for. So a couple of, first of all, my book, is not just for parents of kids with diagnoses. Like mm -hmm. if you feel like your kid is like more intense, more um, sensitive, more anxious, more challenging, whatever, you can get something out of the book for sure. But a lot of parents whose kids have been diagnosed with autism, anxiety, ADHD, giftedness, um, OCD, depression, mental health issues, um what am i forgetting <laughs> odd that's a new one odd Jewish, yeah yeah so odd is one that yeah that that's probably a whole nother podcast for someone else to do but yeah um that's one that some people i know won't even diagnose anymore oh okay well so i just i know about that one because this is a side note that's late in the episode anyway my mom <laughs> is a lawyer for juvenile so people under 16 and a lot of the folks on her caseload are diagnosed with that. And so I have my own opinions there, but um, yeah, it's not, it's not yeah. the time or the episode for that, but it's just one that I'm like familiar <laughs> with. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for a child to be diagnosed with something like oppositional defiant disorder. Wow. Like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. They need to be taught new skills basically. And yeah. they haven't been taught those skills. So just like any child, until they've been taught a skill, they can't, they can't do it. So we wouldn't punish a child for not being able to swim. Yeah. 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 That's one. yeah, it's just, uh, and I feel like that's why I see all these kids on my mom's caseload. You know, she talks yeah. about it all the time. They're the school to prison pipeline kind of thing. And now they get yeah. this diagnosis and now they're just hopeless because they have a diagnosis and whatever, you know, anyway. And what kind of support are their parents getting? See, Not I would much. love to be able to reach those parents. I would love to be able to provide tools for those parents. Yeah. Well, and then they're suffering, those parents, struggling and isolated, right? A lot of the times, yeah, they're the ones they're also like working three jobs because they're in chronic food insecurity and poverty and all the things that you mentioned. It's 
yeah you, i had it easy compared to a lot of right parents. yeah yeah for sure but um yeah so then the book is for kind of anybody yeah like you don't need a diagnosis it's not like a prerequisite right yeah yeah i mean i asked a lot of people to read it and the the consensus was this this could benefit most parents yeah i agree that's what i think i'm like what you said earlier about you know needing to regulate our own nervous systems because obviously like is you know you seems like when your kid when you're late you're running late and then that's when your kid acts worse so then you're even more late that's a good yeah. example <laughs> of that of like you're stressed because you're late and your stress is impacting your kid whether you realize it or not right and then yeah. now your kid's going to act out because they're stressed because you're stressed and maybe you recognize what's going on maybe you don't right yeah, yeah. so um, can you tell us about the, also the resource you created around this? So I have a mindful meltdown cheat sheet. <laughs> I don't have a magic pill to get rid of meltdowns, which is what a lot of parents wish for. Right. And my son had a meltdown. It's his 12th birthday today, by the way. Oh, he had a meltdown this birthday. morning. Yeah. um I don't see them anymore as something to be uh eliminated because Mm. it's a way of discharging their stress it's not the funnest way right and it's not easy to stay self-regulated when your child that you love is having a meltdown or I, I should just put it on myself when my child is having a meltdown it is not easy for me to stay self-regulated. So mm-hmm. in on this just one page cheat sheet, I share four practices that I have used. You do need to kind of learn them ahead of time. You can't just pull out the cheat sheet and look at it during the meltdown. I think that would make it harder. Right. But if you learn them ahead of time, they're really simple, really, really simple. And this is the thing is that simpler is better. Repetitive and boring is better because then when you're in that, in that place of, um, hyper arousal or triggered or whatever you want to call it when you're stressed you'll still be able to call on it because you'll have that kind of as they say samskara right you've, you've mm-hmm. kind of created this groove of this new habit right so yeah that's available for free on my website nice. and then once you have that you can get in touch with me, hit reply on any email and ask me any questions That's awesome. about it that you wanted to. So it also if you don't want like... the cheat sheet, I'm very, very available. <laughs> yeah. Agree. And I love your, your social media posts are always like really good about this. So that's another good free resource. It is. But... Thank you. I love uh, Instagram. I, I wish I could have say fun the same. on it. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for for someone over 50, I think I'm really enjoying myself on Instagram. That's good. Yeah. And you're well, that's the thing is that I think it, it comes through because the posts you make are like useful and relevant. Anyway, like to me as a parent, also, I'm like valid. Good. Thank you. Um, but so then it sounds like your membership that's opening in January has some of these same tools, right? That's kind yes. of. Yes. I would say the membership is for people who are a little further along 
than those who need the mindful meltdown cheat sheet. Like generally they would get that. They would try out some of those tools. If they decide they want to work with me more, um, they might look into the membership because it's, it's a commitment, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not, I don't know how to put it, but it's like, it's like after someone kind of gets to know me and trust me, they might try the free week of the membership. There is a free week. Um, And they also need to have a little more time because Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of live sessions because this is what my members want. They want the support the encouragement mm-hmm. and accountability and connection that come from live online. Yeah. Sessions. Well, I think that's, yeah, there's a lot of value in that. And like you said, there's not a magic pill. Like that's, I think that's why I resonate with yoga personally. I was just talking with somebody about this yesterday, like the difference between like sort of yoga and Ayurveda and say like going to the chiropractor or getting a massage is like, you have to put in the time to work on yourself Versus like going to somebody else and they do it for you and you go leave feeling better because somebody else did something, which to me is still like that magic pill kind of thing. And so, yeah. So when you want to start learning about the tools within yourself, you got to dedicate the time to practice it. Yeah. And the other thing is like people in my membership don't come to every single live session. There are people I've never seen live, but they love the replays. Yeah. They, they email, they go on the, they go on the, um, membership portal and they connect with each other so there's a lot of of support there and they have fun too yeah awesome so that's beautiful thank you for putting those resources in the world because I think they're they're beautiful developments of your life experience and what the world needs and where those things converge which is what I love to highlight on this podcast so are there any like final thoughts you want to leave us with or like one take-home point you hope that folks would get maybe from your work or from this conversation? That's a really good question, Rosemary. And I feel like it's been such a, you know, an arc of my whole story that I wouldn't know which to pick out, except I guess the self-compassion piece just being my, um, kind of my favorite tool. Mm. Yeah. And something that I would recommend for people who, you know, who are curious about it to look more deeply into it. Yeah, I agree. It's a good tool for a lot of things. So thanks so much for sharing all that with us. Thanks for sharing your heart with this, you know, the audience of this podcast. And you're so welcome. Yeah, thanks for being here. So that's all for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed that interview and that story as much as I did. And I also highly recommend connecting with Kate on social media, especially if you are a parent, because there's a ton of value in her content there if you do. And then side note, if you got value out of this episode, if you know somebody that might enjoy it, helping get the word out by sharing with somebody that might enjoy it or leaving a review on your podcast player, I know Apple lets you write a review. Spotify lets you just put little stars, I think, just for now. So if you could leave a review, help me get this message in front of more people. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when new episodes drop. So thanks so much for being here. I'm 
Rosemary Holbrook, your host. Remember to always keep your feet on the ground, your head in the stars, and stay in the light. Until next time, friends, take care.